from field to table and flame to fork. The pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of the campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. All right, here we are, episode two of the Campfire Conversations podcast by One Campfire. This is a wicked episode that I think everybody is going to take something from. Oh, I agree. Uh, this is was my first time meeting Hunter, virtually at least, and uh, I have to say I'm very impressed. He's well-spoken, uh, you know, obviously very intelligent, thoughtful, and uh, he had a lot of interesting perspectives on on wildlife management in general and, uh, you know, sort of from a First Nations perspective as well. Uh, I thought it was very educational. Oh, yeah. I've known Hunter for a bunch of years now. And I I know he he's not one that likes to to jump at doing stuff like this. So when I asked him, I, I wasn't overly hopeful that he would have said yes. And I totally taken back that he agreed to it. And we're so thankful for it. Uh, Hunter is, as you said, so well-spoken, incredibly intelligent man, and he's he's got big things ahead for him in uh, in his career. Yeah, I mean, he's a young guy. What is he, 24? 24. And 24, and, uh, you know, there aren't many 24-year-olds that are as accomplished as he is already and involved with so many really important uh, things. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a, an impressive young man. Oh, totally. He's uh, a hunter, a fisher, forager, a self-proclaimed geology nerd. And he's the wildlife strategic coordinator for his band. And he's, this is a chat about Together for Wildlife and what wildlife means to First Nations and the connection to the landscape. And eye-opening, absolutely eye-opening chat. Yeah, I thought so too. I I learned a lot and uh, I really enjoyed his perspectives. Oh, totally. Can't wait to have him back on. So without further ado, uh, this is episode two of the Campfire Conversations. Enjoy the listen. The perception of hunting, you know, has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters to change it back. We've spent the last few decades trying you know, espousing that, that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, we've, it's fallen on deaf ears, all of our attempts. I think what, what we have to do is, is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side. We have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are you know, voting to get rid of hunting, they don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to translate it to something that they understand. Our guest this episode is, is, a, is a friend of mine that I've known for quite a few years now and super excited to get on the, the podcast, Hunter Lampro. Welcome, Hunter. Thanks, Steve. Everybody, well, a lot of people in the, the hunting community and on the forums will know your name. And let's let's give a little bit of a background on you, who you are, and where you come from. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. It's it's uh, pretty exciting to be more involved and in, in having a, mm. a formal conversation um, 
trying to open some of those doors and, and bridge some gaps that exist. Uh, my name is Hunter Lampro. I, I'm from the Simc First Nation in the eastern interior of British Columbia. Uh, our territory spans the length of the North Thompson River to its headwaters, and uh, the headwaters are the Fraser River and the Robson Valley. I'm 24 years old, currently attending Thompson Rivers University for a degree in geography and environmental studies. Uh, uh, I work more in the wildlife management side than I study. Um, uh, I work as the Quaminta Sequatin Wildlife Strategic Coordinator, so supporting seven, soon to be eight, Sequatin First Nations engaging with British Columbia on wildlife management uh, within their territories. And at a bigger picture level, uh, I am the elected Indigenous co-chair for the First Nations British Columbia Wildlife and Habitat Stewardship Forum. It's a typical government ministry title, hey? Like as many acronyms <laughs> as they could. Um, yeah, and that's the uh, the primary role that I hold every day. But you know, the reality is is that if you care about wildlife and habitat, um, the title isn't as much what matters. It's where do you vest yourself, right? And how do you get involved? How often? And how do you prove that ethics piece? Wow, that's. Uh, <laughs> I knew you had qu quite a few titles behind your name, but like hearing it when you all lay it out like that—that's that's that's, that's, that's an impressive bio, absolutely. <laughs> especially somebody at your age, right? Yes, like I I'm kidding. Like we were just talking about before we started recording. I remember that that sheep draw you had a couple of years ago, and you come quite a long way. So, where did you grow up, and where do you call home? Uh, I grew up mostly uh, on reserve between um, my father's side and Siemk and my mom's side in Switzmalfa, a reserve within Salmon Arm, and then, you know, went through high school in both Barrier and Salmon Arm, and uh, spent quite a bit of time bouncing between the two cities, and then uh, most of that time actually growing up, though, and, and realizing, you know, how I should be mature, how I should carry myself. It was out on the land, you know, like most guys that get into hunting and fishing. If you're in it from a young age, it's thanks to your parents and, and who raises you. Um, I was very fortunate to be in a family that was always outdoors doing something. Um, and having spent that time in that upbringing, I, I couldn't imagine another lifestyle. Um, it, it just brings to light that variety of uh, understandings that you need to approach these broad sweeping ideas like wildlife and habitat. Um, and having seen those you know, 20 years ago compared to where we are now, they got a pretty healthy understanding of what's going wrong, right? If you've been paying attention over the last couple decades, what's on the landscape and, and now what isn't, um, it, it really puts the the gears to, to motion on where should we be focusing, right? Awesome. Like that, that totally goes into where I wanted to go with this. So as somebody who is First Nations and grew up on the landscape with such a deep connection to fish, wildlife, and habitat. What kind of trends are you noticing now when it comes to uh, to, to fish, wildlife, and habitat? Well, the, the biggest trend that I honestly see is, is people always want to get to what's next, right? We always want to point at habitat issues and, and access management and predator management as these uh, dominant drivers and why wildlife populations decline um but we never actually slow down to think what's first right we, we never think okay how do we actually influence habitat management how do we actually influence 
uh, predator management because that's an ugly, ugly subject that we need to be pretty delicate with. Um, we, we can't be a rambunctious crowd that just wants to go clean the slate on predators. Uh, we need to be very sensitive in how we deliver an effective and ethical program. Um, and that consideration of what's first rather than what's next is one of the missing trends. Um, and, uh, you know, we all understand habitat's an issue. Access management is an issue. Predator management is an in- issue. But we don't consider how we actually influence those enough. Um, that's probably due to, you know, partially a, a very divided community of who cares about wildlife and habitat. And how do we show that, right? Um, no. no, totally. We're in a province that's really fractured. You know, we're, we're in one of few jurisdictions that has such a, a variety of user groups, consumptive, non-consumptive, that can't get along for whatever reason. Uh, we'd rather stay at arm's length from one another and, and ignore the fact that we both care about the same thing. Um, we both want better for that same thing. We just can't agree to that. Mm-hmm. And that falls right into what what I believe is the reason for forming uh, Together for Wildlife is, can you dig in a little bit to what Together for Wildlife is and how it was formed and the user groups, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, uh, Together for Wildlife is the province's wildlife and management, or pardon me, wildlife and habitat management strategy. Um, Back, I believe in 2017, former minister Doug Donaldson had a mandate to improve wildlife and habitat management. Um, and that's obviously like just this generic idea. You can't really tell somebody to do that. You know, when I think of that, I think go set a mountainside on fire, do a habitat burn. Uh, but from that legislative and policy setting standpoint that a minister holds, uh, they recognize the need to identify a sweeping reform of how wildlife and, and habitat management is delivered. Um, and they need to do that in consideration of all the unceded land in British Columbia. Um, They need to do that with a very specific lens of uh, how do First Nations participate as individual nations in in the wildlife management paradigm shift that we're seeing. Um, So in late 2018, the Resource Stewardship Division staff had uh, batted around the idea of of creating a technical forum of experts from around British Columbia uh, that work for First Nations, that are First Nations, that understand wildlife and habitat issues. Um, and they sent out invites to the various identified experts, and they created back then, it was a First Nations wildlife and habitat think tank. Uh, and we were all in agreement, like, you know, we, we need better wildlife and habitat management. That's pretty easy to say still is. Um, and so we all bought into the idea that we needed to get to work on drafting that pathway to it. Um, Over the next two years, the forum had developed and proposed Wildlife Act amendments, focused on uh, some small steps to take in reconciliation, and started co-drafting different actions and uh, sort of chapters, goals of the Together for Wildlife strategy. Um, And the funniest almost ugliest stutter step of that whole process was uh, recognizing personally that there were actions I wanted to see in the strategy that government didn't want to give us. They were waiting to hear from non-First Nations on, uh, and that includes the dedicated funding action. I had to go to bat for that a ton. Um, 
up until you know the 11th hour, I believe a week before the strategy was finalized, we still didn't have it in the draft. Um, I was sending some pretty angry, you know, 11 p.m. coffee-fueled emails at that point because I knew if we didn't get a dedicated funding action, it'd be pointless, right? We, we wouldn't have sufficient capacity to deliver all 24 actions of the strategy. Um, and that's just one of those small examples of what a weird uh, structure we're in where we're so divided. You know, government is looking to outfitters and non-First Nations for input on a dedicated funding action because it, it, it's in their mind their money to spend on wildlife and habitat, but it's like, why would we not give them that opportunity to spend in the first place? How is that something that's pretty derogatory to say or potentially divisive and uh, need exercise? You know, it's almost, you almost have to be a diplomat. Oh, I, I can imagine some of those conversations that are flying around that table from, from just chatting with you over the last couple of years that we've known each other. Just and even seeing some of the stuff on on Facebook and the various other forums about how divisive we are as 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 one 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 group as, as hunters and consumptive users, I can only imagine what it's like to sit around a table with non-consumptive users and uh, uh, other groups and, and try and get as, as as it says together for wildlife and. It's it, it's something that you, you definitely need to be passionate about, and uh, it's it's an an enviable, but not so much an enviable position that you're in to be running this, my friend. Yeah, it seems like you know most people in their daily endeavors are focused on their own self interest. I'm sure this is more or less the same. People have their own priorities on how to or what they want to see as an end product or end result. Um. But I mean, ironically with this, I think we could all agree what we want the end result to be, which is, you know, abundant and flourishing fish and wildlife in the province. Uh, so, you know, as as everybody would agree to, that's not any kind of epiphany. Um, but yeah, I, I can see the challenges there and the difficulty in integrating, you know, industry, uh, non-Indigenous, Indigenous consumptive users, uh, non-consumptive users, of the landscape, you know, agriculture, uh, even even the you know city planning, all those things I think have to be integrated into a broad wildlife model and, and fisheries model uh, if we're actually going to property manage. And so that's a lot of, I mean, I would imagine that's just a lot of different perspectives to bring to the table and try to get to folks on a single point in a in a cohesive way. Yeah, we are far too comfortable with how little people value wildlife and habitat, um, and. BC is a natural resource extractive heavy province. And uh, that tells us something. Uh, that tells us that our values on the landscape typically trend towards, you know, resource extraction and uh, all the cumulative impacts that has on the landscape um, that we overlook, right? You can take a flight over the interior of BC and, and it's so visible. Um, a lot of those issues that uh, are for the longest time have been a bit untouchable because that drives economy. You know, if forestry is 30% of British Columbia's economy, roughly, it, it's going to stay that way. Uh, it, it's too embedded in how we understand uh, the province's operations to significantly impact that overall, you know, 30% number, but it needs to be done in a manner that's very delicate, right? And that conversation is super challenging. We're not ready for it yet either. No, 
Well, I, I, that's a good point. I think, you know, the for, I used to work in forestry. I, I had a degree in biology, did quite a bit of forest health work before I went on to uh, my next round of schooling. I, and, you know, it's kind of like the frog in the boiling pot of water. If you, if you went from, say, 1950, took somebody from 1950 and flew over central BC and then put them in a time capsule and flew over in like this year, they would be appalled. Everybody would be. Uh, I think we've just gotten used to it. And we we have this assumption that the way we've been doing things must be the correct way because we've been doing it for quite a long time in, in the same way. This is my opinion. I could be wrong. But that is one of the things I think of, of many things that sort of First Nations, uh, you know, sort of the ethos of First Nations on the land can really contribute to the way we we manage our landscape. The, you know, the longer vision of time, you know, managing things for for multi-generational benefit uh, rather than a five-year business plan. And, and I think that has to be incorporated, in my opinion, at least. And that's going to be a big transition because that's not how our, you know, boards of directors for these companies don't think like that. And, but they need to, if we're going to have, uh, if we're going to preserve and, and, and continue to have a province that can sustain the diversity of wildlife and fishery and, and just even just recreational value that we've enjoyed up to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've said that in multiple meetings with politicians that you, you got to get away from the five-year plan and look for something that you're going to be doing for my grandkids and my great grandkids. And we're, we're, as you said, we're a long way from that. And I, how do we get there? Like Hunter, what do you, what do you think is the biggest stumbling block in that? Yeah. I don't think we know how to lobby effectively like as hunters fishers you know gatherers wh- whatever your activity on the landscape is um bird watcher you know however passively you interact with nature if you care you're not lobbying for it right we're not being deliberate in uh pursuing the right political representatives for fish and wildlife uh, for habitat and that's nobody's individual fault the same way um it isn't just forestry's fault that wildlife and habitat populations suck. Um, you know, we, we can't really demonize one another in that approach. We need to recognize that uh, none of us know how to do this. None of us know how to save the province's fish and wildlife numbers. Otherwise, it would have been done. You know, if there was instructions, a 101 on how to change government priority um, beyond letter writing, which does go a significant distance, um, beyond the typical lobbying platforms offered, those things would have been done. Um, but there isn't enough of that collective, unified understanding of how to do it. And we're not supporting the right people that would deliver it. I, I think that's a great point there. Uh, you, you see it as, as, as you, uh, as you touched on there, but the letter writing campaign at that, that as, it, as you said, it does go a, a certain distance, but it doesn't quite go far enough because, well, to be blunt, a lot of the politicians go, yeah, thanks for your letter. And that's about, that's about it. And that's, that's a huge stumbling block. And we, we said before, we all want the same thing. We want abundant fish. We want abundant wildlife. We want abundant habitat. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the together for wildlife uh, coalition, we'll call it that, we, we can get somewhere with it and uh with traditional first nations knowledge and indigenous knowledge that we you, you touched on there with the the burns you want to 
talk about what that means to a First Nation and, and how that used to be managed on the landscape going back thousands and thousands of years? Yeah, um, quickly, one other stumbling block that like, you know, I, I'd rather be providing a bit of a solutions pathway out of the <laughs> the mess that we're in too. So people know we're not just here to complain that the right people involved now have the at least a, an idea of where to go and that uh, another piece of that structural issue in approaching this uh, disaster situation is identified in Together for Wildlife to drive some of those regional management advisory boards into uh, a more significantly responsible place. It, it is an action in the strategy and and uh, in a bit of background, being transparent um, from the forum, you know, I recognize that in order to deliver a well-structured regional advisory board um, from the top down, we need to understand who is who and, and uh, build a bit of a, not necessarily a template as much as a, a guiding document that identifies what are First Nations rights and title, why are they self-governing, and, and how does that work on a landscape, um, as well as identify and give specific platforms for stakeholders and non-Indigenous groups um, to give meaningful input. Because like you mentioned, for the longest time, it's just been letter writing for the sake of uh, having a pen pal, and that's not fair anymore. Um, and that that structure needs to significantly put government to their accountability, right? We, we need to give tools to those regional boards that can hold them accountable to wildlife and habitat decisions. Um, it, that's another structural piece that we've never had in British Columbia. Uh, that regional voice has always been missing and, and that results in letter writing campaigns, again, for the sake of having a pen pal. Um, that's a stomach block. That, that's one that we should be building a solution for in the new year and, and I'm kind of excited to contribute to. Um, but back to the, the question around traditional burns, I, you know, we, we're finally seeing those reemerge. Uh, First Nations in British Columbia across you know, the province for the longest time burned. Uh, my understanding is my community in Siemk, through the Robson, through the North Thompson, um, burning was so common that uh, they would plan it out. They'd be very methodical with it. They'd rotate it like crops from valley to valley every several years and in how and when they burned. Um, and that resulted in, in a totally different landscape than, um, than we see now, right? When we think of nature preservation and, and conservation, you, you see healthy examples in places like Jasper National Park, where it's a preserve. They haven't done anything active on the landscape. They haven't been uh, stewards in the sense that they're constantly involved in, in influencing the landscape for the better. And they've seen caribou herds um, extirpated, right? And uh, traditionally, First Nations wouldn't have done that. We, we would have been active on the landscape. There would have been a constant improvement or relationship to it, and we'd understand our role to do better because we could. Um, and you compare Jasper in, in the sense that it's a preservation. Humans don't have that constant influence to uh, you go south down into the Revelstoke area where they're penning caribou, where um, habitat is being considered and, and that people are trying uh, it's a different situation. You go further north to the caribou management issues, and, and as much as those have <laughs> stuttered out the gate, um, there is still that active relationship to a landscape that habitat burns would have been one example of. 
That's that's interesting. Um, your perspective on Jasper and those preserves. You know, I think that kind of touches on the thoughts of a lot of people, especially people that are, are not spending a lot of time in the landscape. There's this notion that somehow humans are this invasive species and that we haven't co-evolved with the land around us, but we have. I mean, the indigenous people in, in North and South America manipulated the landscapes for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, when the first colonizers came over from Europe, what they saw was the result of that. It wasn't it wasn't just just the way it was without any human involvement. And I think and I think that is something that we really need to accept and embrace in British Columbia is the fact that well like Shane Mahoney said, conservation doesn't just happen. You know, it takes a lot of thought and effort and it always has. You know, long before there were non-indigenous in North America, there was a lot of activity around, you know, the conservation of, of wildlife, essentially. And uh, I think the uh, the notion that if you just step back and let things do whatever they're going to do without any involvement or, or management inputs at all, that things are going to be better. And I mean, that's manifestly untrue if you look at the parks. And yeah. uh, I think that's that's an important concept for people to to uh, to grasp. And, and that's not because uh, you know humans can and should play creator to these environments. It's that we always did play that role. Um, the typical barrier that people want to put up is like, oh, it's nature; it'll return to its natural state. But they they're pretty distant from the fact that humans were part of that natural state. We are still wild animals, uh, and you know, just because we have thumbs that bend and the uh, chemically charged meatball in our skulls that teaches us how to do some pretty smart things doesn't mean that we're not wild animals. We we were still very much a part of that ecosystem and that landscape, and um, we need to approach that pretty delicately. We need to recognize a lot of those holistic values and uh, indigenous cultures for the longest time did. Right, we were hunter-gatherer societies. Uh, of course, we would care about wildlife. Of course, we'd care about their habitat, and, and that was what our focus was outside of um, you know survival. Was uh, how do we do better for that next generation and, and those to come? Um, it, that enforcement of our responsibility to them required an, an active landscape relationship where we're always seeking to improve it and. Uh, and unfortunately, due to colonization, that was obviously stripped. Um, that's an ugly, ugly conversation that, again, uh, we're not quite ready for, and that's okay. I don't think we need to rush to those sensitive subjects and expect it to work. Uh, I think for now, we need to get to a common place of, yeah, I give a damn about wildlife and habitat. And uh, in order to improve it, I'm willing to you know, come to terms and, and educate myself on those more sensitive things when it's easier. Uh, but we can't even get in the same room and, and say we care about wildlife and habitat as First Nations and non-First Nations. So we shouldn't rush, right? No, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, definitely uh, a, a sensitive conversation. But you, you nailed it. We we do want the same thing, right? And uh, that's you said it before. It's abundance. It's abundance on the landscape. Uh, I don't know a, a single person that wants to see extirpation or extinction of anything on the landscape. It's we, we need to, to, to get there together. Right. And uh, just looking at the, the five goals of together for wildlife goal. Number one, all British Columbians have a voice in wildlife stewardship Two, data information and knowledge drive better decisions. Three stewardship actions, achieve tangible benefits for wildlife 
Four, accountability and transparency build trust and confidence. And five, collaboration advances reconciliation with Indigenous governments. So we we touched on a, a couple of those, but number two, uh, the data, information, and knowledge drive better decisions. Uh, where do you see that one going? Because we, we've already touched on one of the major sticking points being funding. Uh, we know there's, for number one, there's not enough conservation officers in in the province and fish wildlife and habitat is the only ministry in about 40 years, 50 years that hasn't seen a meaningful increase in uh, funding. So <laughs> we, we know data information and knowledge drive better decisions. How, how, where's that money going to come from and what do you see happening there? Yeah, they did receive it. You know, this is a, drop in the bucket realistically but there was that 10 million dollar permanent uplift to the fish and wildlife budget i believe a year or two ago um but that's clearly not enough that, that is for the size of what british columbia is and, and how many different species we have um that's nowhere close and uh there is some background work on the dedicated funding model going on from the minister's wildlife advisory council um Fortunately, as chair of the forum, I, I'm involved in, in the work there so that we can ensure that their results are aligned with the forum's values and, and support reconciliation. Um, but in order to drive that yeah, you know, science-based decision-making and evidence-based decision-making, um, we need to move away from a very centralized decision-making process that we see now. Uh, we, we can't give all our authorities to staff in Victoria to gather recommendations from regional staff and, uh, you know, host public engagement websites to drive a decision. Um, th that isn't a clear, transparent, evidence-based decision. That's a public survey that generally drives a decision. And BC has a, a pretty long-standing history of doing that and, and having poor results. Um, in, in order to support sound you know, Western science, evidence-based decision-making, as well as a meaningful inclusion of traditional Indigenous knowledge, uh, we need to significantly remold our decision-making process. Um, that regional delivery of decisions and, and not just recommendations would go a tremendous length because um, those people in region, those regional staff, regional guide outfitters, regional resident hunters, bird watchers, uh, fishermen, whatever your activity is on the landscape, you're going to understand that unique management unit a little bit better than staff in Victoria who don't often leave the island. They compile those recommendations and they, you know, they deliver a decision for you. Um, that's a very disconnected and uh, unfair model, really. I agree. And I think one of the issues with that model is that it, it leaves the door open for populism to to uh, steer the direction of, of policy with regards to wildlife management. And I mean, we saw that with the, the banning of the grizzly bear hunt a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't a conservation uh, decision. It was a, it was a decision based on, on populism. And I think sometimes populism has a place. I mean, the values of a society will, will dictate how things proceed many times. But I, I often use the analogy of, of an engineer building a bridge in the lower mainland. Uh, the engineer is the expert, or it's, it's not just one person. It's going to be a bunch of experts with different skill sets that, you know, 
bring their skill sets together to to build a safe and and effective bridge that's that's going to last a long time. The government never asked the people how many cables should be suspended from the you know the the uprights. That's that's not they don't have that expertise. And I think that's one thing that the government maybe does too much in BC. Like there was that recent uh, public survey about uh, predator management with regards to caribou uh, recovery. And they were asking the public what their opinion on it was. And my, my thought after filling that out was that it, it sort of would come across to the non-educated and the vast majority of people are not educated in this as an either or. Either you can conserve wolves, you can conserve caribou. And that's not, that wasn't the, that's not the proper way to look at it. And it, it, I found it quite baffling that the province would, would open that discussion up to the public when the vast majority of, of input is from people that are really just low information people. And, and we, we don't do that with almost anything other than wildlife and fisheries, in my opinion. I think we, we usually rely on people that, or groups of people that have, have a, a knowledge base to make sound decisions based on evidence. Yeah, and keep in mind those public engagement surveys aren't limited to BC's public. Um, anyone from around the world could go bombard those surveys with answers. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not a transparent, meaningful database to drive a decision from. Um, government knows that. They're the ones that hold the surveys, they host them, they compile the results, they're aware. But uh, unfortunately, until people do vest themselves in uh, that decision overhaul and, and start to regionalize some of that work. Um, you get along and, and figure it out. <laughs> uh, those public engagement surveys are the easiest way to, to gather a, a general consensus. And, and it's also the poorest, most inaccurate way to do so. I'm well, not defending it in any means. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think the, at least in my opinion, and I could be wrong, I think governments often do things that are expedient rather than Correct, and it's I think cost just effective. Having, yeah, you ha- you have a public survey, and then you you have that as something you can hide behind. You know, you can say, "Well, we asked the public, and this is what they wanted." And you know, I think there's a place for that sometimes, but I think when we're looking at, say, our southern caribou populations, uh, that's not the place for it, in my opinion. I don't think we need to be deciding the fate of a species in a in a large geographic region of the province based on people's emotional connection to wolves, let's say. And uh, I don't know, like it, it just seems like it's, it's a muddy, it's a muddy thing to enter, but it's, it's, it's a big problem in this province is from what I can tell. Yeah. And, and that connection they might hold to wolves is a totally different pack, right? Uh, we can't manage wolves that are on the Island or, or on the coast uh, the same way we do manage those wolves in the Rockies. Um, that's a piece of that centralized decision-making that we need to shake is that we're accustomed to managing one species the same across BC. Um, we can't fall victim to that idea anymore. We need to be pretty self-aware and deliberate with how we deconstruct that. Um, in that the wolves in my backyard in the Robson Valley uh, in the North Thompson are a totally different animal than they would be in the, you know, in the coastal mountains around uh, Pemberton. And if we can't recognize that and and recognize the different impacts they have on the landscape, the different habitat, the different um, potential influence they'll hold over a sensitive species like mountain caribou, um, we're lost. Like like we really have no business trying to manage wildlife uh, 
if we can't be so uh, deliberate and, and fine in detail to recognize that difference, we're, we're lost. Um, and, and that's not, again, I, I'm not pointing the finger at any one individual here as much as we hold, you know, we need to hold government accountable. It, it is also our fault for not lobbying better, for not being more self-aware on how we deliver that messaging. Um, there hasn't been a consistent multi-user group uh, delivery of messaging, and that involves stakeholders and First Nations. Never once has there been that united front saying, yes, we need to uh, reorganize decision-making on wildlife and habitat. And, you know, we, we finally do have a pathway to do that with Together for Wildlife, but that wasn't on, you know, we, we can't thank ourselves for doing that. Um, that was just a recognition internal to those working on Together for Wildlife that it needed to occur. Yeah, definitely a big step Points. when when people just around the province, no matter where they are, are, are recognizing that pre predator management is 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 starting to 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 be important, right? We're 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 seeing it throughout uh, BC when it comes to to ungulate populations and the emotional connection to these these species like grizzlies and black bears and wolves and cougars and that they're managed uh as you said by by populism you, you never see or very rarely do you see a public input poll on how should we manage moose are you for deer hunting it's always these these cute and cuddly ones and uh as uh, indigenous how how do you see predator management? Well, what does predator management mean to you as uh, as First Nations and uh, historically? That's some of the work the forums sort of poised to take on in the new year around species control. Um, and my understanding is that you know each down to the community, each First Nation has different approaches, different customs, and um, indigenous law around what is species control, what is predator management, what is our response to it. Um, I'm very fortunate to be from a community that has uh, very little Indigenous law specific to what species we can and cannot harvest, and it's more broadly a respect and responsibility question, is how do we respect the species we pursue and, and how do we um, hold ourselves responsible for an ethical and, and fair use of those species. Um, then if we hop, you know, 300 kilometers to my west, uh, down to the coast, there's a totally different approach to specific species. Um, the coastal First Nations, and, and I'm not pointing blame, I'm, I'm actually quite excited to have seen this, were one of the few First Nations very vocally opposed to the grizzly bear hunt. And that wasn't because they're, you know, anti-hunting, that wasn't because they don't want to see the non-First Nations hunt grizzlies, I assume, as much as they hold their own Indigenous law around what grizzly bear management looks like. Um, and those laws uh, hold those grizzlies in such high regard that they aren't to be hunted. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful cultural custom that um, was never really explained that way. It was, it was too rapid in that decision-making process for people to come to terms with why they wanted to see the grizzly hunt closed and why other nations might not have, like the Taltan is one vocal advocate for grizzly hunting. Um, there was never that space for a, an ethical conversation on why First Nations may or may not support in different hunting of different predator species. Um, 
indigenous legal customs and legal orders are largely that component. And it's very visible when we consider what those traditional territories looked like pre-contact. Um, coastal First Nations wouldn't have needed to eat grizzlies, right? They're living on the, the riverways and the oceans that are abundant with fish and, and they had consistent food sources. Um, they didn't need to go far to find a meal. You come up into my territory in the Robson Valley and, and in the you know what's now the Kinbasket Lake, if you were wandering around there 300 years ago, you didn't have as much availability, right? Um, there wasn't roadways. You you were often either rafting or canoeing, you know, portaging the, the river systems or on foot. And you were a lot more opportunistic. And that was because of the different ecosystems that they knew and understood that they were, you know, trying and doing their damn ass best to survive in. And that's a, a tremendous praise to the different understandings of ecosystems, the different connections First Nations held. And, you know, if you think about coastal First Nations hunting grizzlies, those are some salmon bears that are a bit rank. Um, why would they? You know, they're living on the waterways. They have that clean, abundant food source. In my territory with less salmon, they're, they're more likely to be berry bears, uh, a lot better eating. And it's one of the smaller defenses to make compared to Indigenous law, but it's still one worth identifying. Well, those are good points. I think it does uh, illuminate the the idea that, you know, First Nations, the province aren't some homogenous group that all are more or less the same. I mean, they were independent nations with their own languages and customs and beliefs and economies. And I think uh, I, I've given this some thought and I, you know, if you look at sort of the economics of First Nations groups sort of pre-contact, you know, the coastal nations didn't have to eat grizzlies, nor do they have to control grizzly bear populations to maintain uh, good ungulate populations because they were fish eaters for the most part. That was the basis of their economy. I mean, of course, they had other things as well, but that would have been the primary component of their diet. Whereas, say, the Taltan were hunting moose and caribou and and these species, uh, you know, and there was probably some salmon fishing as well, but it would have been a much much of a less important aspect of their their economy. And I think that's like, I I like that part of the province up where the Taltan uh, traditional territory is, and and uh, they're quite concerned about the the uh, overabundance of predators and the declining ungulate populations, and they've put some measures in place to try to mitigate that. I, I find it a bit not surprising, but but uh, it's disturbing that there is a, a very uh, well funded and organized anti hunting, especially anti predator hunting campaign or campaigns that that often land in BC. And they do use selective First Nations groups to help drive their particular point home, right? Rather than, I mean, when that when the grizzly bear hunt was was being banned, you only really ever heard on the radio from the coastal First Nations that supported that ban. The Utaltans got some, but very little public uh, uh, shared very little at public stage to, to tell their story and what their what their goals are and what their unique territory requires of them as far as wildlife management goes. And uh, yeah, I think that goes back to what you were saying before, Hunter, we can't have a one size fits all policy province wide. We need to have regional user groups make the best decisions for the region. And I mean, if you live in Vancouver and you don't like grizzly hunting, well, there's no grizzly hunting in Vancouver. Uh, but if you live in Deese Lake, especially if you're first nations, 
in my opinion, that that's their business, you know, that's their territory. And, and I mean, they support non-Indigenous grizzly hunters too. They realize that wildlife management is something we all have to be engaged with. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's definitely true hunter that, that we need to regionalize our wildlife management better. I think that would provide us with a, a clearer focus on what we need to do and also take into consideration you know, the unique knowledge that people will have in the region that they live. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, those are some wise words, Hunter. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I, one point to make, and, and this is just a healthy check. And I, you know, I, I'm not an expert. I don't represent coastal first nations or tall tan. These are just those groups that stepped into the spotlight to exercise their rights and title and, and um, their uh, approach to self-governance. And, those are a bunch of badass people for doing it. Um, I, I draw on those similarities and, and compare the two as good examples of how we should be considering decisions at a scale that matters. It is within those nations' territories so that their laws are guiding the management of their territory. Um, I would ask for the same thing in my territory. And we've introduced a, a pretty healthy conversation on what that looks like. Um, getting there is just going to be that ugly process that really forces us to be self-aware and, and cautious with how we uh, approach one another. You know, I think specifically about grizzly bears after the um, closure, when I went and shot my first grizzly post-closure, uh, I got lit up by non-First Nations hunters, guys mm -hmm. that wanted to hunt grizzlies before the closures they yep. did, ridiculed the crap out of me. You know, they, they went after myself and my father and it was like, are we not like, are we not for the same thing? Did I not just prove that by going this far out of my way to do it? Like it's just that healthy example of um, how divided we are despite wanting the same thing. Yeah. I, I remember that, uh, that, that bear you took and I was holy and how people just lit up on you for, for something that was mind blowing to me. But what, what I, what something I want to go back to, you said right at the beginning of this conversation was the difference between a, uh, a coastal grizzly bear and an interior grizzly bear is being fish eating. So talk a little bit about the myth there that grizzly bears are not edible. Man, I have, <laughs> I have been living on bear meat basically for the last couple of years. Uh, it, it's been a tremendous probably no less than a third of, of my freezer for the last couple of years. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed the different, uh, you know, cured meats and non-cured dishes that I've been able to make from grizzlies and black bears. Um, this spring I, I had a, a landowner who I consider a friend now in the Robson Valley who had three problem grizzlies. Um, and you know, I, this was shortly after the, um, the announcement of the, findings of the 215 children at the Kamloops residential school. And, uh, I wanted to be able to donate a few grizzly furs to, um, commemorate the, the children and to, um, repatriate the remains. And I thought that's, that's a perfect example of, of a cultural and ceremonial use of a grizzly bear fur. Um, you know, I, I went and, and took care of the three bears and, uh, that's the first time that I've, cried hunting because I was just upset. Like I recognized the weight that carried, um, because those three bears were going to a, a pretty strong and, and uh, meaningful use that was just too much to carry. Um, you know, I, I donated those furs and, and they were used to repatriate the remains, but I also got to enjoy the, the, 
the food that came with having just shot three grizzlies. Um, still am. Uh, I, I think my favorite dish that I've made so far, and it's it's very simple, was was just a a take on shepherd's pie using grizzly meat. Um, it it is a very if you get the interior bears, they're naturally a little bit oily or, or greasy, so they do really well for um, for any ground meat. Uh, I've really enjoyed, and, and you can pull them or shred them in, in some sort of sweet sauce, and uh, and they turn out good too. But and it's uh, it, it's something my community has always eaten as well. You know, I I remember I believe it would be my great great. Uh, uncle Richard and my great 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 uncle, who this was before the Kinbasket Lake was dammed uh, at Revelstoke in the Mica Dam, and it was still the Canoe River that flowed from Valemont down to Revelstoke. Um, they would go up in the spring, build a raft at the Canoe River near Valemont now, and uh, and they would float that stretch of river hunting grizzlies and. and uh, you know, black bears in the spring for furs and float down to Fort Revelstoke and trade them. And then they'd either catch a train or, or start the walk back to um, where they were outside of Kamloops near Barrier now. And obviously there's no, you know, there's no 7-Eleven on the float down. There's no grocery store they could stop at and pick up food. If they're actively hunting those bears then, they're also actively eating them. Um, they wouldn't go so far out of their way. And back then it was either stick and string or uh, I believe they'd use like a 2520, like the old, old mm-hmm. rim fire or center yeah. fire, you know, a, a 30 or pinky to shoot these bears and harvest them for that trade and that meat. Um, the fact that we're finally returning to eat them is, is a pretty cool feeling. Mm-hmm. We, we grew away from it obviously, but. Yeah, I, uh, I I love that perspective. That it's it's not something new. It's something you're returning to. That it's it's gone on for generations and eons before. And in my experience, limited experience eating grizzly bear, I I found it amazing. It was it was like a a, a rich beef. And for the last few years, I've had black bear in my freezer, and it's a, it's a staple here. And totally agree with the uh, shepherd's pie. I've actually got a recipe on one campfire of uh, shepherd's pie and it, it translates really, really well to, uh, to, to bear and burritos and fajitas and chilies and just anything that uh, you could use a ground in or, or, or like beef. People say it's, it's porkish. It's related to pork, but I've never found that. I've always found it's much closer to beef in its applications. Yeah. Well, I'll, I, I, I shot a bear, my very first bear when I was 16. I, I grew up in northern Alberta, and I shot a black bear in a oat field. It had been living in this oat field, had trails all the way through it, probably all like since the oats started to ripen. And, and it would have been essentially indistinguishable from grain-finished beef, uh, which really does does show how the diet of bears affects the, the taste of the fat. But the, uh, it, it was unbelievable. You know, I, I actually, ha- I've eaten quite a few black bears in BC uh, since I moved here and, and nothing's quite matched that oat fed blackberry yet for taste, but it was sure good. Yeah. There's a few um, grizzlies we've been after that live on fall rye in, uh, oh. in the Robson. That would be just a, a wicked eating animal. Um, only ever seen them once live though. I, I don't know what's going on there. It's just a, not the right time to, to take them kind of thing I'm assuming. So I've put in the effort. It's just no luck yet, but oh. that would be a really good eating animal. And, uh, 
And I'd love to take a big bear like that and, and you know, at, at one of the first in-person venues that, uh, that we're fortunate enough to host coming out of COVID, it'd be really cool to, to donate some of that processed, you know, Smokies or, or even burger to make hamburgers with and host a barbecue for just for people to try it. It's one of those that has that weird stigma around that they're not going to break it down on their own, right? Nobody's going to invest the effort when we can hunt grizzlies again to take one and eat the meat just to try the meat. Um, and, and there's no better way to to sample something that you're unsure about than to um, <laughs> show up to some sort of banquet, you know, a, a wild sheep society event and, and have the opportunity to um, one day. Yeah, I'm I'm in for that. Like, like yeah, I think I, like one campfire will be in, yeah. in that for sure. Oh. Need our help with that at all? Um, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely would be. Uh, but I, just touching yeah. upon that too, Hunter. You know, I find that with my uh, hunting, I've, my wife is you know she's more social. The two of us, but you know, we all have friends come over pre-COVID for the most part, and uh, you know, we I'd be cooking some wild game for supper. It'd be their first time eating wild game, and you know, without exception, everybody's just enthralled by it. It's just such a novelty for them. Plus it's just really good. And she's had so many of her, her friends come up to her later saying, I wish my husband hunted, you know, after the meal. And I thought that's a, that's a pretty good testament to the, to the, uh, uh, the power of feeding people wild game. Yeah. That would be like my girlfriend saying, I wish you were actually six foot tall, not five foot 11. Yeah. That's kicks you in the back of the leg. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it made me feel six feet tall, even though I'm only five yeah. foot eight. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I, everybody hears it, right? If you hunt and, and share in that bounty, um, you hear it from that. Those people that don't have the you know, privilege of trying it. Mm-hmm. And that's the privilege of being successful in a hunt. Um, well, I think I, that I tradition of hunters around the world is sharing their kill. You know, and I yeah. think that's something we, we need to maintain. And I think we should probably be do, being more active in sharing our our harvest with the non-hunting community at large i think that would go a long ways to just making people realize that this is a, a normal healthy you know activity that that's natural for a human being to engage in oh yeah and we i don't think we share it anymore because we're away from how communities operated you know even 100 years ago where we didn't have independent access to resources. We had to work as you know individuals, part of a community to share it or, or barter within it for. Um, we we don't have that as much, so we don't share it. We're not accustomed to it anymore. It's, it's a dying tradition. It's so common in my culture, we had a word for it. Sharing of a successful harvest was chbila. And if you got a word for it, you're probably practicing it pretty often. Um, and that's a another one that we're we're bringing back like uh when we're our community is issuing protocol permits for first nations outside of our community to hunt our territory it's spelled out in one of our permits to apply for is that you know if you're you're hunting our territory for the sake of hunting somewhere new we expect they uphold that law as kbila and they donate to our community freezer um for elders, you know, low-income families, single moms, uh, if we have a funeral to host for the community to access for those purposes. And uh, that donation, obviously, a you know, significant, generous act that it wasn't traditionally. It was pretty normal, obviously, but we don't do it. No, that's that's awesome. And that's exactly what it's all about. Uh, even, even when you go out for a drive to go hunting with your buddies, that 
one of the best things you can do is bring a, a pack of pepperoni or a pack of smokies and everybody in the truck is, is sharing it on, on the drive or on the, on the hike or on the campfire. Right. And that's, we, we do need to get back to, to doing more of that. And I think that's how we're going to get uh, more people they, they don't have to hunt. They, they just, we, we'd like a little bit more acceptance, I think is what uh, we really need to go for. Right. So that, and that's a brilliant way of putting it. So coming up on an hour here. So let's, let's close in, in something a, a little bit fun, I guess. Um, you, you've got to have a story hunter, something that sticks out in your mind that is either scary, fun, meaningful, uh, hunter a connection to the landscape that really is something that you're going to remember and pass on to your kids. Like just one, <laughs> pick, pick yeah. one or two, pick one or two. Probably hard to narrow that down. Eh? Yeah. 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 I, I think that, you know, being very consistent in, in how much time I spent on the land, considering in the 2021 season, I, I believe between spring and fall, I spent 92 days hunting. Um, it, it's hard to single down to one day in that year alone. Uh, I think, some of the um, more like sweeping umbrella pieces to that. It's a lot of the introductory piece, right? Uh, This past year, I was very fortunate to um, host my my girlfriend, Kate, and her family on um, a couple moose hunts. And and that was just such an interesting exercise uh, because, you know, it was their first time hunting in my territory, but it was also her first time getting out um, hunting moose and, and seeing that successful side of it. Um, it was such a natural exercise for her to participate in that, you know, as somebody that didn't grow up hunting, but came from a hunting family, it, it showed that commonality and, and how natural it is to pick up. Um, we aren't naturally opposed to it, right? We always, every walk of human from every family, traditionally at some point in their life, had to have hunted and fished. Um, and, and that's a more modern example of how easy it is and how um, simple it is to pick up and, and understand if you're willing, right? Um, th- that was a highlight for me and seeing her participate in it. It, it could be just personal bias too. Um, but knowing that there's just that natural ability to participate and understand it is if you're there, if you're present and seeing, you know, the ethics and, and um, activities that you generally participate in on a hunting trip uh, goes a long ways. I think specifically about the the amount of moose that we saw that didn't get shot. Um, I think that was one of the most exciting parts was that connection to wildlife that um, it, it isn't a run and gun exercise and, you know, what can you shoot? It, it's a more deliberate question of uh, where and how are you hunting, you know, and, uh, if you're answering both of those, you know, the where and how questions with, um, with a concern for wildlife and habitat, you're, you're generally hunting for the right reasons. Um, and she sort of forced me to ask those questions is what are we doing here? Are we just out here to shoot the first moose we see? No, like we're out here to be, uh, very deliberate and responsible for this landscape. And, uh, it, it's a, an exercise that we always have, right? If you're out hunting with anyone, you, you experience that. It's just one that I 
have the privilege of being distant to, um, just granted how much time I spend out. A specific hunting trip, though, uh, would have been 2020 with uh, who is now my director, uh, my boss, her son, uh, myself, and my father went out for a weekend moose hunt. And, um, you know, it, I don't know, I'll, I'll attribute it to conservation karma and, and for showing up for the right values, but uh, it was a busy weekend. Um, her son is, was, I believe, 11 at the time. Um, might have been 12 and, and wanted his first big game animal. And so we went out moose hunting and, um, day one, first thing in the morning, he, he takes his first animal. And that was this beautiful exercise and culture and, and, um, growth, you know, he's a young man and that's his first animal. It's this tremendous step where now I get to look to his mom and know that she's provided for that kid's hooked. He's not getting away from this. Um, they did it in a very healthy way and, and they uh, made their offering and, and did their prayer for the animal. And that was beautiful. And I thought, you know, my weekend's done, right? Like we got what we came here for. The the young guy got his first animal. It's exciting. We go back to camp, process it, get it hanging. And we go for another hunt in that afternoon. Um, and my director took her moose and that was like, okay, like something, something's weird here. Um, they both took young bulls uh, you know, the, the ethical and, and responsible harvest. Um, and, and we thought, why, what are we going to do now? Right. Like, uh, so the next day, um, we go out again and, uh, <laughs> see a giant, uh, like close to eight foot grizzly right on the road driving into an area. And, uh, I didn't get a shot off. I, I really wanted a bear, um, didn't get a shot. He, he made it up into a, a regen patch full of huckleberry and, and the thick, nasty stuff that you typically don't want to chase a bear into and, and figured whatever. Um, that, so we, you know, busy day, we saw quite a few more moose and, and we're getting pretty questionable, you know, stuff far from the road, stuff we didn't want to bother with, uh, some older bulls and that we just left. And then the last day of the trip, it was a Thanksgiving long weekend trip up um, headed back to see if that bear's close. Uh, my father ended up taking a, another bull and bull moose, which was exciting. Now it's like, okay, like, you know, everybody's provided for, we are all in, in good shape going into the winter. And I figured, wow, well, like, you know, let's get this thing cooling and, and go look for that bear just in case. Um, and sure enough, we get back to the regen patch. He disappeared on us in and, uh, and spot him and, and um, make the walk up to him and ended up taking a, a really beautiful uh, seven foot eight nose to tail interior grizzly that was old. Like he was a really, really old bear. Um, teeth were worn down. He was really skinny and, and he didn't have a full set of winter fur for October. Uh, that told me like he's on his last couple cold ones, right? He, he's not going to make it through many more winters and, and that's the right bear to take. So it was a busy weekend, like all the skinning and, and uh, processing that we had to do. My knuckles were getting sore and a bit swollen, but um, that was a loaded weekend full of uh, appreciation, right? Uh, that's awesome story and getting a chance to hear it again because I've, I've heard the minute you said going out with the, uh, the, the kid, I knew where you were going with that because I got to see the pictures and hear hear a little bit about that before about about that weekend and yeah that one sticks out to me as well and i, I can see why that was uh 
such such a, a strong memory even though it's not too long ago that's one that's going to be passed on so all right i think we've taken up enough of your day hunter so uh it, huge thanks uh once again for coming on and uh look forward to catching up with you again in the future as we we see where together for wildlife leads yeah we thanks can a lot that. hunter yeah no problem we can do a check-in in six months or something and, and give an update again and uh it's a healthy, easy way to, to brace the conversation, right? Absolutely. Appreciate your time. Cheers, yeah. guys.